All right. Today, we are going to be in Isaiah 49. That's where we're going to start. And we are going to plow through. I was, um, you know, preparing this and looking over it. And there's plenty of distractions and plenty of other things to worry about, right? And I was just praying and I was like, gosh, Lord, you have called me to be an authority on Isaiah Sunday not an authority on anything else. And so let me, let me be just that. And, um, and I share that for your encouragement. There's a whole lot of people that are authorities on a whole lot of things that aren't you and aren't me, right? And um, there's stuff in our house where sometimes Caleb will just get all worried about how we're going to eat lunch if we have to make it to this thing, and now we're going to make it to that thing. We're just like, dude, don't worry about that. You let mommy worry about that. We're, you worry about you know, playing your violin really good when it's time for violin practice. And, um, and it's wild how much of this section of Isaiah is focusing on us worrying about the things that we're supposed to worry about and don't worry about the things you're not supposed to worry about. Does that make sense? And it fits right here. So it begins in Isaiah 49. Um, the, other, the other section of this, remember I said that Isaiah 40, it kind of changes tone. This section from 40, we're going to be on 49 to about 54 or 55 today. This whole section, Isaiah does this big flip around. And sometimes Isaiah is talking about himself. And sometimes Isaiah is talking about Israel. Sometimes he's talking about the faithful remnant of Israel. Sometimes Isaiah is talking about God. Sometimes Isaiah is talking about the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And he flips through those sometimes in the same sentence. (laughs) And you don't know, wait, what, wait, who, what? And you don't know who he's talking about. But um, it's worth reading slow. even though we're going to do 49 to 55 today. It's worth reading slow. All right, Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. His In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So right there off the bat, you got one of these. Is God, is is Isaiah talking about himself? That he called, that God called Isaiah even from the womb? That even when Isaiah was in the womb, God called him to be a prophet? But then all of a sudden he says, you are my servant, Israel. So then all of a sudden you think, oh, wait a minute. He's talking about Israel. So even when Israel, who was Jacob, but he's also this nation, right? That God called Israel while Israel was still in the womb being formed to be my make my mouth like a sharp sword. I'm calling you Israel, you people. 
I'm making you, I'm hiding you in the shadow of my hand. I'm making you like a polished arrow that I'm keeping in my quiver just for the right moment to launch you out. Remember in Hebrew poetry, they'll say the same thing over and over and over again, but they'll use all different words. Picture the nation Israel, the people, not, not the nation. I don't want to say the name, not the government, but the, the, um, the lineage, the ancestry, the line of Israel, God's chosen people being like a polished arrow hidden in a quiver, being like a baby in the womb, hidden, waiting and growing, right? That polished arrow is just waiting to be pulled out and fired towards its target. That baby is just waiting to be born, to live and to fulfill its purpose as a person. All of that is Israel, these people. But wait, he said to me, this is verse three, you're my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely, oh, I've spent my strength on nothing in vanity. So if Israel, the people, are God's you know, tool, God's polished arrow, this baby that's being formed and birthed for a purpose, but then it failed, right? Israel chased after foreign gods. They worshiped idols. They mixed in with all these other nations and all these other religions. And that's where they say, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. But surely my right is with the Lord. My recompense is with God. I'm still with God. I'm still his arrow. Even though I'm off target, I'm still God's arrow. Even though I'm not living out my purpose, I'm still God knew me when I was formed in the womb. All of that is bunched into these four verses, right? Verse five, now the Lord says, so now that you've been through all of that, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. Now, wait a minute. Now, the thing that he's talking about is something that's going to bring Jacob back. So he's talking about the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. That Israel might be gathered to him. I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. And now he's talking about himself, Isaiah. So we're just five verses in and the I and the me has flipped like through all these different stages, right? This is a really great way to read this section of Isaiah is to not say, who is it specifically talking about and not try to figure that out? Because even in the original Hebrew, it's really hard to figure out. It's a great way to read this section of Isaiah is to say, what if he's talking about Jesus? And what if he's talking about God's people, like the church or Israel or the, 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 uh, the line of Jacob? What if he's talking about Isaiah, the prophet, that day, that guy in that time? And ask and pray through the implications of each one of those people, right? And what if it's you? Because there's things that are written in the scripture 2,600 years ago 
that are for you today that apply to us as a group, me as an individual, all of those things. So it's really, it's really great to read. And that's kind of how we're going to read the next five chapters is constantly uh, almost doing like um, paper dolls. And we've got the costume, but we're going to swipe. Who, who is wearing this outfit? Who is, who is it talking about? What if it's this person? What if it's this person? And, and switching it around. So he finishes there. I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord. God has become my strength. You've got this, this very clear thing that whoever this is, God wants to bring people back to him. God wants to draw people to him, especially Jacob, the Jewish people. But then in verse 6, he even blows that to pieces. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It is too small for you to be my servant to bring Israel back. That's too little. I want you to bring the whole world back. Wow. I, I used to have a, a pastor, mentor, helper guy, and um, we would talk about things, and we'd talk about events that we were putting on or stuff, outreach events or things. And, um, and one day he says, you're just like me. You look at this, and everybody else is planning for 500 people to be here. But when you look at it, you see 6,000 people here, don't you? And I really didn't. <laughs> but I remember the day he said that, and he thought that of me, and he expected that of me. And I realized this guy, he is who he is because when he does church stuff, when he does outreach, he doesn't think in terms of 500s. He thinks in terms of 6,000s. And that's why he is who he is. And from that day on, I started thinking that way because he assigned it to me, right? That's the same kind of thing. God says, you're my servant. I didn't call you to be my servant to bring back Israel. I called you to be my servant to bring the whole world. That my salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to bring back Jacob. You'll bring back not just the preserved of Israel. I'll make you a light to the nations. That's what God says to Jesus. That there's a turning point in the Gospels where Jesus is, you know, he's going to the lost sheep of the children of Israel. He tells the disciples, don't go into the land of the Gentiles. Just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he is, um, at one point, he's going through Samaria. And this Samaritan woman comes and falls at his feet. And he says to her, it's not good to give the children's food to the dogs, lady. That's really offensive, right? I mean, if we were walking out of a store and a homeless guy came up and said, do you have a dollar? And I said, I'm not going to give my kids grocery money to some bum. That's lighter. That's kinder than what Jesus said. I mean, Jesus said, it's not good to give the children's food to dogs. She did not turn away from that. And she said, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that the kids drop. 
Even dogs get to eat that. And she's expressing to him, if all I get is a crumb of power from what you're giving out to Israel, that will heal me. That's how power, I recognize that's how powerful you are, Jesus. Well, that was an interaction with a Gentile. Jesus had a few more. He interacted with a couple Romans. But then when, when um, I think it was Andrew, when the Greeks came and they wanted to talk to Jesus, Jesus didn't say, okay, let's go talk to them. He said, guys, the time has come. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is it. That was a signal to Jesus that he was going worldwide at that moment. That he was, it was going to be the last Easter or the last Passover for him. Thus says the Lord, this is verse 7, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, servant of rulers. Wow. This is what He says, but He's recognizing that He's hated and He's, he's not liked. Kings shall see and arise. Princes will prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in the time of favor, I've answered you. In a day of salvation, I've helped you. I will keep you and I will give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land and to apportion the desolate heritages. That's like the most complex verse in the whole Bible. (laughs) So you're going to be hated. You're going to be despised. But kings and princes are going to bow down to you. I'm going to give you as a covenant and you will restore and establish the people. That's the gospel right there. That's the whole life of Christ. That's three years of Jesus's life wrapped up in less than a sentence. He's going to be despised. He's going to be hated. But God's going to help him. God will bring the day of salvation to him. And kings are going to bow down to him and worship him. But he himself is going to be the covenant that will save them. When um, Moses and Aaron, there was one time when a plague broke out. And it's it's my favorite event in the whole Bible. Um, I mean, except for the resurrection, which has to be your favorite, right? Um, which is awesome because it points to the resurrection. But in Numbers, there's this plague and uh, all these people are dying. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron and Aaron runs against all of the people that are grumbling to stop this plague. And God says, you will be the line between life and death for them. That Aaron himself was the line between life and death. It's not just there was a line between life and death and it was here. It was Aaron. It was a man. And this is that same kind of thing. There is a covenant that God's going to make with his people and that covenant is Jesus. It's not that the covenant was this vague thing or a piece of paper or a document. The covenant God made was Jesus. And that's what he's saying right here. He himself will be the the covenant. Verse 9, he'll say to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. 
They shall feed along the ways on all the bare heights. They'll have pasture. They won't hunger or thirst. Scorching wind nor sun will strike them. He who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water, he will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road and my highways will be raised up. Again, all these mean the same thing. He's just going to make life easy. He's going to lead you. These are all the horrible things that they had experienced. When they got dragged off to Babylon, they didn't have shelter along the way. They didn't have a rest stop. Um, Half the people that got dragged off to Babylon died along the road, along the way. I mean, it's kind of like the Trail of Tears kind of thing. It's just a, a, a massacre of travel. And he's going to take all that away. You're not going to have any of that. You won't even trip. You won't even stumble on anything. You'll be led the whole way. Behold, verse 12, Behold, these will come from afar. Behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of Syene. Sing for joy. There's going to be people coming to the Lord from all nations. Sing for joy, O heavens. Exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. It's just super party. Even nature is in a right spot. There won't be forest fires. There won't be earthquakes. um, Right now, the whole world, all of creation is in rebellion. Except for things in, in whom God's Holy Spirit dwells. But the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in a tree, right? So the tree can fall on your house. I mean, it, it's, that's where we are. And that sounds like this really joyful thing. And then you get verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Um, maybe you've talked to somebody, some people like this. Maybe you are somebody like this. Somebody will say something really great. Man, this weather is great. Yeah, but that means all the mosquitoes aren't going to be dead. This is the best cheeseburger I ever had. Yeah, but you're clogging your arteries. You're going to have a heart attack when you're 30. It's like, come on. Everything's going to be bursting for joy. Even the mountains are going to sing God's praises. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Um, it, is, it is okay to feel like you don't deserve forgiveness. But it's only okay to feel like you don't, forgive, you don't deserve forgiveness until you receive it. Does that make sense? Because of course you don't deserve forgiveness. That's why it's called Forgiveness. Of course you don't deserve God's grace upon you. That's why it's called God's grace upon you. But once you receive it, once you have been forgiven, just get fat on that stuff. Just take it in. Drink deeply. It says elsewhere in Isaiah, drink deeply from the wells of salvation and walk in it. The Bible says... God took him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we would be the righteousness of God. Now, if I just said, I'm the righteousness of God, you might all step back and get ready for the lightning bolt, right? Because that sounds pretty bold. Um, But the Bible says that. 
about me. The Bible says that about you, that God took him who knew no sin. I mean, do we believe that? Jesus, did he know sin? No, he never committed a sin. To be sin, do we believe that? All the wrath of God was put on Jesus. So we believe that. So that in him, if anyone is Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We are in him. We believe that. So that we would be the righteousness of God. You can't just not believe the fourth part of that sentence. You've got to believe the whole thing. So, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. They're not believing God's salvation that he's holding out right in front of them. He is putting it right on them. Here is your salvation. Here's all, even the mountains are going to sing my praises. Don't be that person. Don't, don't wallow in self-pity or how bad you are. Um, I remember guys at the mission. There are numerous guys that had so much guilt that they thought they could never be forgiven. And they'd, they would tell me about the horrible things they did. Um, There's one guy telling me about how he killed people. And we're having this conversation. And I'm a murderer. And I got to tell him, it's all forgiven. Jesus died for all of it. God is not so weak that there are some sins he couldn't die for. He died for all of your sins. It was the Day of Atonement on the Jewish calendar, and my chapel speaker that night actually had a shofar and was blowing it. How awesome is that? It was great. Verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion? This is God's reaction to people saying, Oh, but Jesus, I've done bad things. God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child while she's nursing them? Even if she forgets, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. I love this verse. This, okay, so um, talk about God's word never returns void. I was a little kid, second grade, had my first communion, Catholic school, all that business. Somebody gave me this little picture, and you've probably seen it, and it's the big hand with a little... Uh, cute little kid carved in it and it says this bible verse and the kids so then i get older and i'm rebellious and not paying attention to any of it and i find another translation one translation says behold i have graven thee upon the palm of my hand so king james says i've written you on the palm of my hand the esv the niv say i've engraved you in the palms of my hands and so there's a discrepancy there, right? Did God write you on his hand or did he carve you in his hands? And I use this just from my own life as a great way to study the Bible and a great way to, to check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? In my rebellion, I used to see those two as different and say the Bible can't be true because it doesn't make sense because those don't match. Now I have the Holy Spirit in me and I look at that and I just want to slap myself because I was obviously rebellious, right? What's the difference? The difference isn't as beautiful as thinking and dwelling and meditating on 
What are the implications of either one of those being true? Okay, so let's let's take the ESV and the NIV. I've carved you in. I've carved you in the palms of my hands, like I've made you, like you're handmade. If I'm handmade by God, am I important? Gosh, like I just think about stuff at our house. Like when I put the bunk beds together, I don't care how sturdy the bunk beds are. As soon as David comes in and goes, hey, these look pretty good. I'm like, don't shake my bunk beds. I just made them. They're barely finished. He's not going to break them. I know he's not. But still, I, I, right? You, You hang a picture on the wall. Somebody walks up to it. And what do they do? Oh, is it even? And they start to move it. And you're immediately, oh, I just hung that up. I made that with my hands. There's a thing they call now the Ikea effect, that if you, if you build it yourself, you like it more. So Ikea can charge more money for that stupid table because you put it together, so you value it more. What if God made you? What if God handmade you? How important are you to him? All right, great. Let's flip the other one. What if you're written in his hand? Whoa. What if you're like, um, if you, if you, you know, you really want to remember something, you really want to keep track of something, you really want to be reminded of it, you write it in your hand and it's there all the time. It's there constantly. Next level from that, think about people and their tattoos. If you ask people about this, everybody's tattoo, nobody ever is like, oh yeah, it's just tattoo, no big deal. Nobody's ever like that. They always have a story. I got it here. I got it on this day. This means that. That means this. It always has significance. If God has engraved me in the palm of his hand, that means he's got a story about me. He's got stuff to tell. He remembers when he did that. He was thinking about it while he did it. Wow. So I say all that to say, if you're ever talking to somebody, or even if yourself comes up and you're reading two different translations and they don't fit and they don't match and it's confusing, ask the Lord to reveal to you the significance of that difference. Does that make sense? Lord, show me, show me what a big deal it is for both of these to be true. And, and he will. The other awesome part about that verse, I'll just say it real quick, um, which is impossible at this point. Your walls are continually before me. Your walls. God says, I've engraved you in the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your walls would represent what protects you, your safety. What if God's What if God is constantly thinking about my walls? What if God is constantly thinking about my safety, my security, my trust, and my well-being? Wow. We don't feel like that sometimes, do we? I don't think God's feeling about my, worried about my security right now. I hear all these gunshots in my neighborhood. Is God worried about my security right now? I'm sick. I'm ill. I hurt. God 
is always thinking about your security. He's always thinking about your well-being. Isn't that wild? Now, when I say God is always thinking about your well-being, it's not that you need to have a 2020 Maserati. Although that would be awesome. He is thinking about your well-being with his purity and his holiness that is wise and good. Isaiah gives a little glimpse of the opposite of that in verse 17. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Your builders are trying to keep yourself safe on your own by your own power. Don't do that. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They all come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on like a bride. Imagine wearing your enemies like an ornament or a patch. Imagine, you know how, um, what are they, brownies? The Girl Scouts, how they have those sash, they have the sash and they have all the patches all over their sash. I never was one. I don't know which way it goes, but the whole sash thing and it's covered with patches. Imagine if in heaven we get to wear our enemies as badges. And we get to walk around and be like, oh, you dealt with fear. You beat fear. You conquered um, isolation and loneliness. That's right. Did that. The Lord conquered these things. Wow. That's what he's saying. Lift up your eyes. As I live, declares the Lord, you will put them all on as an ornament. You will bind them on as a bride does. Think about, I mean, a wedding. How much goes into what, what's, the, what's the veil going to look like? Is there going to be like, is you going to get a tiara going? Are there going to be little shiny glitter in your shoulder pads? You know, what, how are we going to decorate this thing? Imagine decorating it. Imagine your enemies and the things that cause you harm being so weak and powerless that you treat them like a charm, charms on a charm bracelet. Little decorations, little badges to show what Jesus has conquered and beaten. Wow. All right, skip to chapter 50. Chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Isaiah knew how to talk just by his education. He knew how to sustain people, but he also recognizes that that came from the Lord. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Every morning, God wakes you up. And God, it's like when uh, Jim says, I'm on the right side of the grass. How's it going? I'm on the right side of the grass today. Every day, God puts you on the right side of the grass. He is doing it to tell you something, to guide you along, to help you along. And you might not even realize it. Kind of like Isaac Telling, answering these people's question down in Florida and every, all the college kids saying, the Holy Spirit was speaking through you to me. I don't know about those kids. Isaac didn't know that was going on. 
Morning by morning, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike. I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace or spitting. What a flip right there, right? Well, that's what happens. If you don't regard the praise of men, you don't love the honors of this world, and you just look at God and all you care about is God and all you listen to is God, what happened to Jesus? He gave his back to those who struck him. They struck his cheek. They ripped out his beard. They spit on him. The world, Jesus said at the Last Supper, the world doesn't like you. They hated me. They're going to hate you. They're not going to like you more than they like their teacher, your teacher. They don't like me. They don't. Bad stuff happens to me. Bad stuff is going to happen to you because the world hates us. And that doesn't mean that we get a, a, a chip on our shoulder and we're like, oh, the world hates me again. More persecution. I can't take 13 items through the express lane. I can only take 12. Persecution. Nonsense, right? It's looking to the Lord. Oh, the Lord, the Lord, he's so good. All this bad stuff happens. The Lord is good. I'm going to keep looking to him. Even when he was suffering and punished by men, he still kept his ears open to the Lord. And that open ear to the Lord built a deep trust. So it didn't, it, Jesus did not lit, trust the Lord based on his circumstances. If Jesus' trust in the Father only relied on circumstances, he wouldn't have made it anywhere close to the cross, right? Beyond his circumstances. Verse 7, the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. A hundred years after Jesus dies on the cross, a hundred years later, the church is growing. The church is thriving. All of the men that proclaimed that Jesus should be crucified, all the people in that square that said, crucify him, crucify him, were all dead. Jesus was still alive, moving among his church. His Holy Spirit was still working miracles a hundred years after his death. And all of his accusers were gone. It says, who will declare me guilty? All of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead to show that um, it, it says in Psalms that your Holy One will not see decay. That Jesus' body did not decay and is still alive is amazing. It's showing that he outlived all of his accusers by 2,000 years. He had that much confidence. This is the confidence Jesus had that he would raise from the dead, from this kind of stuff in Isaiah. That you'll, you know, you'll go through this, but you've got no adversary that's going to last. You'll outlast all of them. 
All right, skip down to 51. The encouragement turns to all of us here. 51.1, listen to me, who you who pursue righteousness, you seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. Abraham was not much when he was called. None of us were very much when Jesus saved us. Romans says we were still lost in our sin when he saved us. How much more so will he live in us now? Skip down a little bit further to um, verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. They who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Everything's going to be wiped out. Everything is going to fade away. We don't know if Jesus is going to come back on Thursday or if Jesus is going to come back in 3619. At some point he will come back. But the earth is going to go through a whole lot until then. Uh, powers, governments, kingdoms will rise and fall, pass away into obscurity. Others will come back up and be, uh, you know, you read about the Aztecs and the Mayans and how they just had all kinds of industry and all kinds of advance. And now you can't see any of it, right? Um, All the stuff comes and goes. But God's righteousness will last forever. His righteousness will never fade away. He will not ever stop. We, um, me and some of the kids went geocaching where you get a latitude and a longitude and there's a something hidden at that latitude and longitude. So you get your GPS and you drive around and you get the little kid in the back seat and he's like, it's over there by three miles. So then you try to figure out how to drive over there and you get there and you're like, it's 100 feet that way. And we get out of the car and we're on um, South Green River Road and the, the river is flooded so you can't drive. And so we park the car and we get out of the car and we're walking down South Green River Road like we're going to walk into the river. And all of a sudden the arrow points this way and we're like, wait, it's over there. And we go over there and it's a cemetery. There's a cemetery on South Green River Road. And we're like, it's in the cemetery. Let's see if we can find it. We start looking around and it's a cemetery and we could barely read the names on these tombstones. These are old, old, old tombstones. And we're looking at it and it's Aiken, like Aiken Park and Aiken Theater and all that. It's where I guess the first Aikens are buried in the 1800s. We're like, whoa, wow, you know, and You kind of diverge from the geocaching for a minute to be amazed. And then I said, you guys, there's Indians that are buried out here from like 2,000 years ago. That's what Angel Mounds is. We're like, what? We start talking about Angel Mounds, and it's just a hill of dirt. You start to get, you know, we, we haven't been to Europe. We haven't seen like the really, really old stuff. Angel Mounds is about as old as it gets, and it's just a hill of dirt. But when kids start to grasp that time that, gosh, this has been going on for a long time. This is really old. 
God's righteousness will go on further than that. God's righteousness, his holiness, his salvation. My salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. That is so, such, a, such a long-term plan that we can put our faith in. Then in verse 12, chapter 51, 12, he closes. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of a man who dies, of the son of man who's made like grass and have forgotten the Lord? Can you imagine, you know, these people that are buried in these graves from the 1800s? There was probably somebody. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know who these people are. I don't know their story. But if they were in, had some anger, they had some strife with each other. They had hostility with each other. Maybe they had unforgiveness. Maybe they had bitterness. And I walk up on that scene and they've all been buried for 200 years. 100 years. Do you think any of that unforgiveness and bitterness matters now? Gosh. I have no idea, but if they're with the Lord, I'm pretty confident that whatever strife and fight they had doesn't matter anymore how much better it is to end that stuff while we can right gosh he is the one he comforts us we have no reason to fear he says in verse 13 you fear continually all day the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy where is that oppressor now but it makes you want to go out to those tombs and be like where are your oppressors right I do that at funerals. Where is your sting, death? This person's going to rise from the dead. This is, this is so quick and so short. The Lord wins. He made the beginning. He'll make the end and he'll still be around. All right, skip down to chapter 52. Verse 6, you get a therefore. All of this. We're short. We're temporary. We, we don't last forever. God is with us. God is comforting us. God is our shield. He is our salvation. Verse 6, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they'll know who I... It's I that speak. Here I am. How beautiful on the hills, on the mountains, are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion... Your God reigns. How awesome it is to be that person that brings that good news. It is great. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. Verse 9, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. Verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. All right, wait a minute. He bears his arm. We, we have a saying that is not much different than this. He rolled up his sleeves. He rolled up his sleeves and brought salvation. He did it. We get to shout this. We get to tell people this. You know what is awesome? It is that you have permission... And full license 
to tell people that don't ask that God loves them and cares about them. If you don't have any clue how evil and wicked this person is and all the sin they're harboring in their heart at that very moment, you can tell them God loves them. We have some friends, I might have told this story before, they're walking down the street, they're some missionaries, and they go door to door and pray for people and stuff. And they see this guy standing by his car, and he's about ready to get into his car. And my friend David, he says, hey, we're Christians. And he thought, that was really stupid to say. Who greets each other like that? And the guy in the car says, well, good for you. Hmm. Gets in his car. He sits there for a second. And so I'll tell, I'll tell it from that guy's perspective. He realized, gosh, have I gotten so far away from God that when somebody waves to me and says we're Christians that I don't care and I'm mad? I don't want to be that far away from God. I want to be close to God, not, not evil. So the guy opens up his door and says, hey, come here. I'm sorry. Apologizes to them. They start talking. The guy starts to confess all these sins and say, I'm so far away from God, I don't want to be. Will you pray for me? And they get to lay hands on him and pray for him. And they get to go back and visit him and talk to him more and more. They didn't have permission from anybody to tell that guy, hey, we're Christians. But the Lord was in it. The Lord was in that thing. I think there's a lot to be said. Um, People that have been around me when a crazy person comes up have seen this happen. But sometimes you don't have to be rational. You don't have to make sense to people. If somebody comes up and they're telling you all about their car broken down and they need gas and this thing and they just got evicted, they're not making any sense. You don't have to make any sense. God cares about you and loves you and is, is really involved in your life. You can just say that to them. That makes as much sense as them coming up and telling you all about their problems and their car broken down, their dog dying and losing their job and all that, right? Do it. Engage. Engage with what the Holy Spirit is saying to them at that moment. God wants to save you. God wants to deliver you from your problems. And then you can pray for him. What? What? That's what we can do. We can be those feet. Those people with those feet on the hills that have good news. Proclaiming salvation. Proclaiming it. Because it's true. Behold, my servant will ask wisely. He will act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Jesus will be exalted over all sin. All sin will fall away. Every problem we've ever had will wear as a patch. We'll have so much victory over it. And anybody can take part in that just by believing that it's true. They can instantly be a part of that. Then we start to get verses 14 and 15 of 52 are the preamble to Isaiah 53. And I'm not going to do it justice and it's probably better than I'm not. Verse 14, as many were astonished as you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
He's talking about Jesus on the cross. Jesus was so marred that he was unrecognizable. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Chapter 53. Who has believed what he heard from us? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He's talking about the servant now. He gave you that little preamble. And then verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. We didn't even recognize him. We didn't pay attention to him. It's, there's a moving scene in the Passion, the Passion of Christ movie where there's a guy watching Jesus doing all this suffering and Isaiah 53 comes to mind and he starts to recite it and he's realizing that Jesus right here before him is fulfilling this stuff. Jesus was acquainted with grief. Verse 4, he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. That Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, knew about every single hard thing you would ever experience. He knew about it. He knew all about it. We like Verse 6, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. That is, there's this idea that if you, if you have a sin that you haven't confessed, you aren't forgiven it. And that is just not true. If you, if you were only forgiven what you remembered, then your salvation would depend on your act of reciting all of your sins. And then it would depend on you and it wouldn't be salvation. Right? It depends on him and his grace. All of our iniquity was laid on Jesus. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He didn't open his mouth. When we had a sheep, the guy I bought my sheep from was this really wild dude. And he said, Hey, do you, know, do you know how to kill it? And I said, no. He said, let me show you. God made them for sacrifice. He said that about this sheep I was about ready to buy. And I said, what do you mean? He said, watch. When you lay it down on its side, and he takes this sheep real tenderly and caringly, and he lays it down on its side, and the sheep reared its head back and exposed its whole neck. And he said, that's their reaction. When you lay them down, when you lay them down, they prepare themselves to be sacrificed. That's how God created them. And it was like, oh, wow, you can have it. I've learned more about Easter than I'll ever learn. You can keep your sheep. No. That's how Jesus was. Pilate accused him. At any moment, Jesus could have said, well, he, well, you... Well, they, and I didn't, he didn't say any of that. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. What's really awesome, when he did open his mouth, Pilate says, don't you know I have the power to free you or to kill you? And Jesus says, you have no power except that which my dad gave you. And it says, from that moment on, Pilate was afraid. 
Was Pilate afraid because Jesus said, Oh, you better. Or you, I No. Jesus wasn't even defending himself. He was defending the Father, right? Here in Jesus' presence, Pilate says he has power. How dare you? You don't have any power except that which my Father gave you. Wow. He only spoke up to defend his Father. Um, Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the... When he was hanging on that cross, you know, Mary is looking at him and she has no hope of grandchildren, right? No one has any hope of him ever living. He's not going to have any longevity in his family. That was the pride of... The pride of a Jewish family was a gazillion grandkids. This longevity. That was how longevity happened. And um, it's just not going to happen. He's cut off, stricken. They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isn't that funny? Even Isaiah, um, he considers it a wicked thing to be rich when you die. Isn't that fun? Like in all the midst of all these horrible things. And he was even buried with a rich man. And that actually happened. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. And he gave his tomb to be used for poor Jesus. So you get to kind of see the flip of of how to be a rich man when you die is to show hospitality, right? Uh, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. All of that judgment was put on him, but then he lives forever. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. Jesus is satisfied and happy to save you. He's happy. He's satisfied. That's why when we're at the mall, when we're in line at Hardee's, we can tell somebody that God loves them and God cares about them. I used to have a buddy, and he would always say, Jesus loves you. Jesus, he'd go to the convenience store and you know, get a Slurpee, and he'd be checking out, and he'd say, Jesus loves you. It's true. And he'd leave. And people, what? Because if they believe that, if they believe that it's true, Jesus is satisfied with saving them. He is happy to save them. Finally, at the end, he bore the, verse 12, he bore the sin of many. He makes intercession for the transgressors. He stands in the way for us. He stands in the place of salvation. So, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen the cords. Strengthen your stakes. This is not just for your little village, Israel. This is for the nations. We come all the way back to verse what we were talking about in chapter 49. Go to the nations. Tell people about this. Proclaim salvation to everybody you can. And I'm going to stop with that because that's a good way to end. No, I'm not. I'm going to go all the way down to 17. 54, 17. Put 54.2 and 54.17 together. 54.2, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Don't hold back. 
lengthen your cords. Verse 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you will succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me. We have absolutely nothing to fear. God desires for all the nations to hear about it. And he cares about our security and our safety and our well-being the whole way. Let's pray. Lord, it's true. We praise your name, Father. Thank you not only for saving us, but empowering us and loving us all the way to the ends of the earth. And I pray that you would give us a way, um, even when we're quarantined and isolated or whatever, that you would give us a way to go to the ends of the earth to tell more and more people about your love and your salvation and your sacrifice for them. Thank you, Jesus, so much. Amen. All right. Let's stand and sing number 208 together. Plan.